Amen. Well, we've been looking at uh, some of the parables that Jesus taught um, in his ministry. We've kind of been walking through them in this little mini-series that we're going through, and it comes to an end tonight. This is the, the third one. And so we started off with the parable of the sower, which was the first parable that Jesus ever told. And we kind of used the parable of the sower to answer the question, why would Jesus even speak in parables? Because he tells them, I'm purposefully going to confuse people. <laughs> because people are not receiving him as he should be received as the Son of God. And, uh, and they refuse to, to show faith and belief in who he is. And so he says, I'm just going to weed out the chaff that's in the crowd. And if you don't want to exercise faith, and you don't want to exercise belief in who I am, then the, the truth is going to be hidden from you. And he uses the parable of the sower, that first parable that he gives to explain why he's going to do that. And then last week, we looked at uh, one of the most well-known parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we looked at what does love require of us? The great depths at which the Samaritan, who is the enemy, would go to care for someone that he doesn't even know. And how we see that really all of scripture can be combined down to this idea that we should love well. We should love God and we should love other people. And that we should do that perfectly and really that we can't do that. But praise God, we have a Savior who can do that for us and does that for us. That Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan and what he's done for us. And so I thought it would be fitting uh, as we kind of end our little mini-series on the parables to, to look at the very last parable that Jesus taught. Uh, at least according to Luke's account. And that is the parable of the wicked tenants. It's found in Luke chapter 20. If you're following along, you can begin to turn there. Luke chapter 20. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can find in different accounts. Different accounts have little subtle variations, and we'll talk about some of those. Uh, we're going to look at Luke's account, and, and according to Luke, this is the last parable that Jesus taught in his ministry. So we looked at the first one, we jumped kind of to the middle, and now we're going to the end. And we're going to kind of see what Jesus is doing here. And this is uh, called the parable of the wicked tenants. You may have it, the parable of the evil vine dressers, or the wicked vine dressers, or the parable of... Uh, the gracious uh, vineyard owner. There's different versions of it, but we're going to just call it for tonight's sake the parable of the wicked tenants found in Luke chapter 20. And before we look at it, it's really important for us to get some context of what's happening. Because it's really going to be important that we know what's happening when Jesus tells this parable. Specifically, when this moment happens in Jesus' life and ministry, so this is when Jesus, when we come to Luke chapter 20, this is the middle of Passion Week. This is Wednesday of Passion Week. This is the week that Jesus on Monday comes into Jerusalem, that great scene, Hosanna in the highest. It seems like maybe finally he's beginning to be received as he should be received. And the people are, are praising him and Hosanna. And then the next day is Tuesday. Jesus, his disciples, they go into the temple and you remember this scene. Jesus looks around and he is not happy with what he sees in the temple. There are money changers there. There's businesses that have been set up in the temple, doing money, profiting from things in the temple. And Jesus is, just goes crazy. I mean, he begins to throw tables over. He is forcing people out of the temple. He's cleansing the temple. At one point, Jesus makes a whip and begins to physically drive people out. He says, you're, you're corrupting my father's house. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And this really is the last straw for the religious leaders. Remember, all along through the parables, we've seen that the religious leaders have been after Jesus. 
They're trying to trick him. They're trying to find uh, uh, things to, to accuse him of. They want him dead. They want him gone. They have for a long time. And so far, they've been unable to do this. But this scene on Tuesday of Passion Week where Jesus cleanses this temple is really the the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, for the religious leaders. Because let's remember, it's the religious leaders of this time that allowed this to happen in the temple. This was the system that they allowed that they set up. And Jesus comes in and says, no, this is not how this is going to be. And he begins to drive these people out on, on, on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday... Jesus is back at the temple. He's, he's moving through the crowd at the temple and he's teaching the people. And the religious leaders are so fed up with it that they come to Jesus. And you could read this at the beginning of Luke chapter 20. They come to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And they're basically saying, what gives you the right, Jesus, to do anything against the system that we have established? By what authority are you doing any of this? And uh, Jesus begins to enter into a dialogue with them. Uh, he begins to talk. He, of course, he's not going to answer the question directly as Jesus was not doing. We, we, we've seen that through the parables. He asks another question and they go back and forth. But at the end of it, he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he's going to tell a story. And he's going to tell the parable of the wicked tenants. And the parable of the wicked tenants is going to come off of the heels of the question, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus is going to use this parable to answer that question. Another way that he's going to do that. There is something else that we need to note about this parable uh, as well. This is a prophetic parable that we're about to read. This isn't just a story Jesus is going to tell. There is some deeper truths here that Jesus is about to express. This is going to be a prophetic utterance of Christ. He is going to tell of things that have not yet happened, but are about to happen. And that makes it important. It also makes it important to note that Jesus is going to look back through the entire history of Israel with one simple story. This really is going to be a sweeping history of the nation of Israel up to this point, even though it's very common language. So he's not going to, he's asked this question, by what authority did you do these things? And he's going to tell them this story. It begins in chapter 20, verse 9 with this. And he, being Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. Now, let me just stop there before we go. It says that he, he began to tell the people. But this is, as we're going to see as we move through it, one of three parables that Jesus specifically tells in regards to the religious leaders. This is one of those parables that is aimed directly at the religious leaders of this day. But there is a crowd there with the religious leaders. And so there is a crowd, crowd of people there, and he begins to tell this story to the people. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while, or yours may say, went on a journey, a long journey. And this is a very common practice in this day. This is absentee ownership. Uh, basically, um, in, in that day, we, we even saw that the, the very first parable, parable dealt with agriculture, right? It's a parable of the sower. This is a big thing for this culture in this day. Uh, and, and so on, on the flat ground in the valleys is where they would plant their crops and their grains would grow. But on the sides of hills is where they would plant their vineyards. It's very likely that even when Jesus is telling this story in the temple, that they could look around or go right outside and see some of these very vineyards on the side of the hills. Very common in this day, vineyards. And they would put them on the sides of the hills, and they would, uh, says that there was a, a man who planted a vineyard, and, and 
in Matthew's account, it actually gives us some more detail into the vineyard, that a lot of care was actually put into the vineyard, that there was a hedge built around it, sort of like a fence to, to guard it and protect it, that a wine press was built on the inside, that a tower was built there where people could stand and they could look out over everything and guard it, make sure nothing is coming in that shouldn't be coming in. A lot of care in Matthew's account goes into what was planted there in this vineyard. And it says that he let it out or rented it to some tenants. This is also very common in this day as it is even today. Uh, maybe some people who have some special farming skills come in. The owner is going to go on a journey. So he has someone come in to continue to work and foster the ground. And this would be very common in that day. A contract would be made between the owner and the tenants. They would decide on everything up front. This is normal even for us today. They would decide on how everything is to be run and how it's to be produced. That at the time of harvest, the owner would come and gain what is rightfully his and the rest, what was left over, would fall to those tenants. This is very common uh, language for the people that are hearing this. Verse 10. And when the time had come, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. When the time, of, when the time had come. So what is that referring to? This is the harvest. The time had come. The harvest is there in which uh, now the owner would send for his agreed-upon produce. This is very common. Nothing unusual up to this point. The audience that is there that is hearing this parable would very much understand this type of language. What's not uncommon, uh, however, is the response of the tenants. It says this, But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And this is that moment in the parable, which Jesus does so often in his teaching, where he introduces the shock. He introduces something that would not normally happen to draw people in. It says that he lent this, his vineyard out to some tenants to, to do this, and that he sent a servant, and that when that servant came to get what was rightfully the owner's, those tenants beat this man and sent him away empty-handed. This is illegal behavior in the eyes of the Jews. This is against their own laws, illegal behavior, not only to not pay the man, if it, simply if they just didn't pay him and sent him away, that would be illegal, but to then beat the man becomes criminal. This is criminal behavior. And the word beat that is used here for beat this man is a strong word. Uh, this man did not just get slapped around. This could mean a, a, a more like a full body pummeling. I mean, this is real abuse that happens to this servant. They beat him and they send him back with nothing. And then in verse 11, the owner's response. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and they cast out. He sends more servants, more servants. They are treated shamefully. They are beaten. This is where we actually get the Greek verb from which we get the English word for traumatize. I mean, this is, they are, they are caught, they cause these men severe trauma. Uh, we would better understand it in our culture today that these men were in critical condition when they left this place. This is Jesus using language that is strong. 
This is illegal criminal action on the part of these tenants. And certainly the crowd would not stand for this. They would not stand for this. In Matthew's account, uh, you can actually read, even more servants are sent. It says he keeps sending servants. And the same fate happens to these servants. In fact, some of them, according to Matthew's account, were stoned, and some of them were even killed. And this is, this is to the audience, to the, to the Jew that is there who is trying to live a righteous life, trying to abide by the laws that God has instituted. This is absolutely outrageous. And Jesus is doing this, as we know, for a reason, to draw them in even further. And so he asks this question in verse 13. The owner does. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Now this seems like a silly question. Especially if you're putting yourself in the context of when this story takes place. To the Jew that is hearing this, and the owner says, what shall I do? What do you mean, what shall you do? You take vengeance. An eye for an eye, right? A tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. You go and you take back what is rightfully yours. And what would have been the the case in that day is that the owner would have gone to the authorities and told them what was taking place. The authorities would have sent almost a small army to this vineyard to capture it back, to take those tenants out and give it back to the owner and then punish and judge the tenants. This is what the Jew is thinking. What do you mean, what should you do? After the first servant was beaten, this is what you should have done. You should have taken action. But we see continually through the parable already that the owner is being very patient. He sends another servant and another And he says, what then shall I do? He's going to try one last thing. And he decides that he'll try one more time. And at the end of verse 13, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. If they aren't going to respect one of my servants, maybe they'll respect one of, or they'll respect my son. You see, in Jewish culture, the son, as you may know, had the rights. The heir had the rights. So the heir could go as a representative of the, fa- uh, uh, of the owner with the owner's full authority is the only one who has the right to that property other than the owner himself. And by sending the son or sending the heir, this should have been the end of the process. But it isn't. It says, verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They saw him coming and noticed that it says that they saw him and they knew exactly who he was. They did not see someone coming and mistake him for another servant. They didn't think, oh, here comes another one of his servants. No, they said, that's the heir, that's the son. And then they begin to enter into dialogue with each other and plot and plan and think that if we kill this this heir, we will gain the inheritance. This is a premeditated murder of the son, of the heir, knowing fully who this was. A shocking story. 
stunning response. And thinking of the Jews that are hearing this story, what their response may have been, especially as it continues to get worse and worse and worse, and now the son, the heir. This is outrageous criminal activity, illegal. Maybe they thought that the father was dead or the owner was dead and that the son comes as the, the legal right. And so if the father is dead, maybe they think if they kill the son, then we can gain the inheritance. They also know the law said that if a piece of land goes unobtained for three years, it falls to the workers of that land. And maybe they think that that's close to them, that they can gain that if they just continue with their evil plot. But whatever the reason, they continue to abuse and kill all that are sent by the owner. And then in verse 15, at the end of the verse, what, what, what therefore, Jesus just in, ended the parable. That's it. <laughs> they send the heir. The heir is taken out and killed. That's the end of the parable. Whoa. Now Jesus says in verse 15, what therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So now he's, he's ended the parable and he's asking them, what should the owner do? This is a rhetorical question that he's about to answer. Actually, in Matthew's account, they answer, and they say, vengeance. Wretched tenants have vengeance. But Jesus, in this rhetorical question, asks them, what shall this owner do? The, the owner is not dead. He's alive. Now, what shall he do? And in verse 16, Jesus answers his own question. and says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then notice this. It says next that when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, wait a minute. The crowd wouldn't have sympathized with the owner throughout this entire process. These are law-abiding Jews who are trying to be righteous, trying to follow God's laws, trying to live a good life, trying to be God-worshippers. They would be outraged by this type of action. All through the story, growing, increasing outrage. And then Jesus, when he gets to the end, says, now vengeance is going to happen. Those tenants are going to be taken out. They're going to be punished. They're going to be destroyed, he says. And the vineyard is going to be given to others. And then they say, the crowd responds, surely not. This is a strong, emphatic. In the language, it means no, 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 God forbid it. No, this cannot happen. Now, why would this change all of a sudden take place with the crowd? Why would they sympathize with the owner all through the parable and at the very end when Jesus says vengeance is going to happen, justice is going to happen, they respond with no, this can't happen. This can't happen. What is going on here? Why the sudden change? And in order to see that, we need to understand the cultural ramifications that are taking place in this story through the interpretation of what they would have understood because they're understanding something. What did they understand? Whether it was throughout the progression of the story or in one instance, somewhere along the way, they got it. So what is it that they got? What is it that they understood? Well, let's walk back through it. What would they have understood? This language is very clear to the Jew. The man went to plant a vineyard. The owner went to plant a vineyard. Who is the owner? The owner represents God. The vineyard that was planted was the nation of Israel. This was God's chosen people, a people for his own possession. 
The imagery is very clear. It would have been for them. A hedge of protection is put around this vineyard of wine presses in there. It could have simplified the, the sacrificial system. A tower is built in the vineyard. Very great care is taken into this vineyard. This owner plants it. He cares for it. He nurtures it. He gives it everything it needs. Sound familiar? He frees these people who he has chosen from slavery. He provides everything they need in the wilderness. He leads them. He guides them. He gives them every physical and spiritual need. He plants a vineyard, which is the nation of Israel. And then it says that that man went on a long journey, which signifies the silence of God in the time that they're talking about. Those 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. There was a 400 year gap where God was silent. No more prophets, no more thus saith the Lord. And in those 400 years, the religious leaders began to create a system in the silence of God. And so he's on this journey for 400 years. And then while he's away, he let it out. He let his vineyard out to tenants to keep the ground, which signifies the religious leaders. The tenants in the story are the religious leaders. Uh, This is mainly directed at the high priests and their broken system that they came up with in the owner's absence. Could have signified also the kings, predominantly priests, including some self-appointed false prophets along the way. All and any who have had any stake or any responsibility in the spiritual welfare of Israel are the tenants in the story. These are the people that are supposed to take care of the vineyard. They're supposed to produce it. They're supposed to work the ground. They're supposed to care for it. And then the servants from the owner are sent multiple times to gather what is due to the owner, and this represents the prophets. The prophets, this is extremely clear, In the Old Testament, all the way up to John the Baptist, were sent to draw the people back to repentance, draw them back to the word of God, to back to obedience, back to how God wants things to be done. And listen, if we know anything about the history of Israel, we know that it's a history that is marked with abuse of the prophets. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah was constantly mistreated. He's thrown into a pit. And tradition says that the Jews stoned him to death. Ezekiel faced the same hatred and hostility. Amos had to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected. He was stoned. Micah was punched in the face. He was pummeled. And the history of Israel is a history of prophets calling the people back to God and the God and these people just abusing them time and time again. Jesus even said that. The Sermon on the Mount, just in the same way as they used to do this to the prophets before me. And this story, again, is looking back over the history of Israel up to this point. And it's also looking forward. Because who is the son? This is the obvious connection in the story that the son is sent by the owner which represents Jesus Christ. He comes on the father's behalf with the father's authority with the father's power to claim back what is the father's 
And remember, they knew he was the heir. They knew he was sent by God. They could not even argue with the things that he was doing. We talked about that in the first week. You can't argue with the things that Jesus is doing. With the miracles that he's performing, with the healings that he's performing, they're obviously divine. But they did not accept them. They would not accept him. And instead they rejected him. Because he was a threat to their religious system. So when Jesus tells them what the owner is going to do, what God is going to do, essentially essentially he's saying, God planted you as a nation. He cared for you. He gave you everything that you needed. He provided for you. He called you a blessed people among all the world. And then some tenants came in, these religious leaders, they came in, they begin to influence, and they begin to change things and begin to draw things away from what they were originally intended to be. And so God would send some servants, the prophets, to draw you back and to try to bring you back to him, but you would continuously abuse them and you would stone them and you would kill them and you would send them away. But now God has sent the Son. And now he is uttering a prophetic word that the son now will be killed in the same way. And this happens two days from now. And then he says that the owner is going to come and he's going to put those wretched tenants, he's going to destroy them. And the vineyard is going to be given to others. Now, who are the others? Well, in this instance, it would have been the followers of Jesus Christ. It would have been, certainly in that instance, the disciples, who we know begin to take the gospel message after the ascension and after their great commission. They begin to take it out. This is a changing of the guard of the religious leaders. And certainly on a bigger scale would mean any follower, true follower of Christ. And so what the Jew is hearing here is that no longer, this is going to be a complete change of everything you've ever known. Your heritage is not going to be one of a blessed nation anymore. It's going to now be a blessed people who are under Christ. And in fact, it's going to be opened up no longer just to you Jews, but it's going to be opened up to the Gentiles as well. This was already something that was beginning to be in process. Last week we talked about how Jesus mentioned a Samaritan. He actually visits the Samaritan woman at the well and begins to talk to her. The disciples are seeing all of this, and soon the disciples are going to begin to take this message to the Gentiles. Thank God for that, right? Because that's us. And he says, your, your own heritage, your own background, your own history is going to change. And the people, first, and they begin to understand what is happening as he tells this parable. They put the pieces together. Some even think that as he was concealing the truth from people in the parables, that in this parable, because it's prophetic, that he allowed the truth to be revealed in one instance. That suddenly people got it. Specifically, maybe even the religious leaders understood that, that Jesus is speaking against them specifically. And everybody understood what was happening. And they said, surely not. No, no, God forbid this cannot happen. This cannot happen. But then in verse 17, it says this, but he looked directly at them. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8, which are again very familiar Old Testament passages that they would have been familiar with. And it's this idea of a, co- of a cornerstone that holds the pressure and the, the, the weight of two joining walls, which represent the Jews and the Gentiles. And the idea here that he's, he's telling them, well, what do, you think, what do you think was written back then? It's all prophesying to me. It's all pointing to me. I'm the cornerstone. He's telling them that the Son of God, like a cornerstone, is either received as the foundation or he is not. And if he is not, it will fall upon those who reject them or reject him, and it will be a crushing blow. The Son is either the Savior or the judge of everyone. He is either your Savior or your crushing stone. And in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. And this doesn't happen at that very hour. It happens in a couple of days. They get their chance, finally. And Jesus is arrested. Just like in the story, this premeditated murder of the son takes place. Just as Jesus prophesied. He gives them a sweeping history of their nation up to this point and says, and not only that, but this is going to happen. And what he says is going to happen happens exactly how he said it was going to happen. And this is why, you know, I know in, uh, in Bible studies, it's not as necessarily important to talk about application as it would be in a sermon. Um, but I just, for me, I cannot help but read this type of story and think about why, why is it so hard for me to understand why people would not believe in Jesus Christ. Anybody else feel like that sometimes? And, and I know for me, when, I, when someone comes to me, and maybe this is a good thing for all of us to think about, when someone comes to us and they say, why would you believe that? Why would you believe in Jesus at all? Why would you believe in the, the Bible or God at all? Maybe a good response for us should be to look at this type of story and say, you know what? If there's a man that could come and he could predict things that were going to take place in the future, and then those things happen exactly as he predicted, maybe we should listen to that man. Because that's what happens here. In a couple of days, Jesus is arrested, and a few days later, he's raised back to life, and he told people that that was going to happen. He told his disciples all the time that was going to happen. They didn't get it at the time. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to raise back to life. If someone can predict that and then pull it off, we should probably listen to that guy. And so he tells these people that's that's what's going to happen. I'm, and 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 not only that, but he, after his ascension and commission to the followers, his disciples are going to take over the reins. And through the empowering of the Holy Spirit that comes, they're going to begin to spread the gospel. And even amidst great persecution, the gospel message is going to spread like wildfire. And then in 70 AD, (laughs) the Romans are going to come and they're going to completely demolish the temple. They're going to destroy it. 
No stone will be left standing. Everything in it is destroyed. You can't even go back and look up the genealogy of the priests. It's all gone. There was, from that time on, no more sacrificial system. As Jesus said, I am the final sacrifice once and for all for sin. Their entire system is demolished in 70 AD. And Jesus said, that's what's going to happen. The tenants, the system, this process will be destroyed. And it will be given to others. And the true followers of Christ are going to begin to take hold of that vineyard and to care for it. And that gospel message is going to go out. It's going to grow. It's going to spread. It's going to spread. And here we are, thousands of years later today, followers of Christ, because of his power and his authority. And yeah, if someone says that this stuff is going to happen and then it happens, we should probably listen to that guy. And someone wants to, maybe wants to say, well, what about all this stuff in the Old Testament? Or what about this? Or what about that? There's things that are, that are wrong. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's mistakes. What does that matter? Jesus said he was going to die. He died. He said he was going to raise back to life. He was raised back to life. That's where our faith should be. We'll work all that other stuff out later. And for me, as I read this story, I just cannot help but think about the blinders that are on some of the people. In this story, even today, that refuse to see and to understand that the Son was sent by the Father with his power, with his authority. He is the heir. And we should listen to this guy. And thank God that we live in our culture today that we have this revelation that we can look back on and we can see and we can gleam from this and we can grow from this and we can yes, even be spurred on to worship this awesome Savior that we have that would extend this to the Gentiles, would be our cornerstone, would be our redemption. The last parable he tells is to answer the question, what authority do you have? What right do you have? I'm the heir, the son of the most high God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. I am Lord of all. That's the authority that I have. And your system, which is broken, is going to be destroyed, and it's going to be given to others. What an awesome thing that God has done, specifically for us who are Gentiles. It's no longer a blessed nation, is a blessed people. We are blessed because we are under the we are under the sun, we are under the air, and this should make us all the more joyful and give us all the more reason to rejoice and to worship. Yeah, we should listen to this guy. We should listen to this guy. So Father, we thank you for your great love story for us. We thank you for your redemption for us for opening this door for us. The power and the authority that you had. Thank you that we get to see it, that we get to understand it, that it is not concealed from us. It is revealed through, through your son. 
Help us to take these truths and the truths that we glean from Scripture every single day and week and put them into action in whatever way it applies to us individually. And to all, to you all, glory and honor is due. And we thank you for your great care for us, your hedge of protection around us, that you would call us back time and time again, even though our hearts are prone to wander, that you are patient, that you are gracious. And we love you. We give you all glory and honor and power, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son, the Messiah. It's in that great name that we have gathered. It's in that great name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I certainly thank you for the time that I've been able to be here with you over these few weeks. And next week, Pastor Troy will come for a few weeks and he'll be with you uh, before Pastor David is back for the fall series. And so uh, we look forward to that. Have some cool things coming up. Uh, be sure to, to, to always be plugged into what we're doing. Um, thank you again for, for these times. It's been great for me personally. Hopefully it's been good for you as well. Uh, and with that, you're dismissed. Thank you. Have a great week.